You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. I would love for pastors to say, hey, let's take a moment this Christmas uh, and examine the history behind the the Christmas story and remember uh, that it really happened. And that, my friends, was Father Dwight Longnecker, the priest, the author, the man himself, talking about the Magi, one of those great mysteries of history, and like a detective, Father is here to tell us a little bit about the Magi, who are they, where did they come from, and how do they figure into the story of Jesus. You might think you know quite a bit about them, but... I was shocked by some new information I learned in this interview, so stick around. My name is Michael Litchens. I'm happy for you to join us. And now let's go to the interview with Father Dwight Longnecker talking about the Magi. All right, Father Longnecker, of course, not many people would be aware that there's actually a controversy around the Magi, the three wise men we see at every Christmas play or hear about whenever we read the Gospel of Matthew. But... You decided to go ahead and weigh in on this debate that not many people are too aware of. Can you tell us a little bit about the controversy of who the Magi are and what do modern scholars say about it? And- yes, you, you know, we have a kind of double thing going on in the church, and I don't mean just the Catholic Church, but mm-hmm. right across the Christian churches, in which a lot of our, and mo- most of our pastors and people will, every Christmas, uh, recount the beautiful Christmas story of the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the gifts and the magical star. Uh, and most of the people in the pew kind of accept it without thinking that, oh, yes, this is something that really happened, um, and accept the supernatural dimension to it all. Uh, In the meantime, a lot of the pastors, and certainly a lot of New Testament scholars and uh, academics, uh, they don't think any of it happened. (laughs) (laughs) To to put it bluntly, um, they, they think at best it's a highly elaborated story, which may have some grounding in a few historical tidbits, uh, but for the most part, especially the Magi story, uh, the vast majority of biblical scholars uh, will treat it as a, a pious fable. Mm. So we have this double think. Uh, and I went back and said, well, look, let's admit that uh, this story has accumulated lots of elaborate traditions around it. But let's strip, try to strip those away and see if we can find the historical foundation underneath it all. And what I discovered was uh, just astounding the way all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. I'm sure, absolutely. So I'm just curious to know, what are your takeaways from this? What do you think are some of the biggest myths of the Magi that we have here compared to, say, the biblical scholar accounts of the pious fable? Are are you asking what are the the legends that have grown up that we ignore? Yeah, yeah. Well, the legends that have grown up that we all accept uh, really began to accumulate in the second and third century when extra infancy narratives, especially influenced by Gnosticism, began to be written. Uh, and we still have these books. They're, they're not in the Bible, of course, but there are things like the, uh, the a- Arabic infancy narrative. There's a, uh, a book called The Revelation of the Magi. There's an Armenian version of the, of the infancy narratives. And these um, stories, especially focused on the Magi, began to um, uh, elaborate on the story. Uh, I, I refer to um, Galadriel in Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, who says <laughs> history became legend and legend became myth. Uh, and this is what happened with the Magi story. And so we, we tend to re- believe that they were called Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. They were three kings who traveled from uh, far away, probably Persia, India, or even China or Africa. Uh, and they followed a magical star riding camel- camels across the desert. None of that, of course, 
uh, is in Matthew's gospel. Uh, he doesn't call them kings. He doesn't say there were three. He doesn't mention camels. He doesn't say that they came from Persia or India. And the reason these um, uh, legends uh, and even myths grew up in the first five centuries of the church uh, are explained in my book. Uh, there are good reasons, but I try to peel them away. Certainly. So at the core, who are the wise men then? And what well, do we know about them? Is there any other historical evidence for them? Well, you have to read the book, don't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I encourage all our listeners to do so. It's a, it's more than a Christmas book. It's actually a very fascinating history that a biblical scholar, anyone who thinks of themselves as a biblical scholar nerd will love, love this book. So, yes, you should read the book. Yes, but I'll, I'll outline ba basically. Um, my view is that uh, they are from the Nabataean kingdom. The Nabataeans... Mm -hmm were a kingdom just to the east of uh, Judea. They were King Herod's neighbors. And the reason I, I focused in on them is because I first began my uh, research by asking whether the prophecies in Isaiah, chapter 60, might indicate where they came from. And those prophecies say that uh, they came from various Arabian tribes. So I began to look at the history of Arabia, uh, the history of the Arabian peoples, and uh, it was just fascinating the way it came together uh, to, to come up with my theory that the wise men were Nabataean diplomats uh, who traveled to the court of, of King Herod the Great. Yes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Nabataeans are the ones who built Petra, correct? Yeah, Petra was their capital. Uh, they were a fascinating civilization, and the mm -hmm. reason we don't know very much about them is because very strangely they did not leave a, a written history, uh, and therefore they were kind of swallowed up in the mists of time. Uh, also, with all the troubles in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, the Saudi Arabian government over the last, for a long time, have prohibited a lot of uh, archaeological exploration and historical exploration in their country. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, the history of the Nabataeans have, has continued to be uh, a bit of a blind spot in ancient uh, Near East history. Um, and, and so... Uh, if you mention the Nabataeans, uh, many people don't know of them. They know of Petra because it's so famous. Um, but, uh, yes, they were the ones. They, they had a, a vast um, trading empire, mm -hmm. uh, shipping things across the Arabian Desert from the port of Yemen uh, across to Petra and then uh, further west to Gaza where they put them on the ships to, to ship them across the to the rest of the Roman Empire. Also, uh, the other main trade route was running north and south from Egypt up to uh, Syria, Damascus, Asia Minor, and and uh, Persia. So they controlled this um, these shipping routes. Uh, think of them as an ancient um, uh, trucking company, if you like. And that's a very interesting theory that I got very excited about when I read it because most theories I'd heard was, and you quote John Danilou a few times in your book, one of my absolute favorite writers, but he often thought that they were Persians, which I had always heard growing up. Is there any historical evidence that they might be Persian at all, or is that something that's just part of the myth? Well, the reason they were um, identified as Persians is, again, very understandable, but it was an a, a easy mistake to make. Uh, I compare it to a detective story, and I said that in a detective story, the obvious answer is hardly ever the right answer. Um, and the uh, reason they were identified as Persians is twofold. Uh, first of all, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the center of Christianity moved north uh, as the Jews and the Jewish Christians were persecuted, uh, moved north uh, first to Syria and then to Asia Minor, and then, of course, Greece and Rome. And as the center of Christianity moved north, 
when the Christians in Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome read that the wise men came from the east, they looked east, and that was Persia. Okay. Uh, now, the other thing is, there was a caste of uh, soothsayers, astrologers, shaman, wise men, uh, who were called the Magi, uh, and the, that comes from the word Magoi, which is a Persian word. And so, knowing this history, uh, they put two and two together and came up with five. Uh, and <laughs> and yes. that is, they, they concluded that the Magi were the historical Magi in Persia. But my research showed that actually by the time of Matthew's Gospel, the Persian Magi were a spent force, uh, and Magi was a, had become a generalized term for any kind of wise men or uh uh, co intellectual courtiers at, at 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 the court of any of the of the of the kings uh, throughout the Middle East. So you would have found magi uh, in Arabia, in Egypt, in Persia, in Armenia, in Greece, and Rome, uh, even further afield. Uh, the magi had uh, the Persian magi had emigrated, but also the term had become uh, a generalized term for any kind of astrologers, wise men, prophets, or uh, uh, sages. I see. Very intriguing. And about this time of year, we're going to see a lot of uh, blog posts and things like that about how Christmas is entirely fictional, how it came from an Egyptian mystery religion, or whatever's the latest theory is. I'm curious to know, is this a response to that general idea that Christmas is entirely a pious fable? Or are you trying to respond just to focus on the Magi and show, no, there might be evidence for these guys in particular? Well, it focuses on the Magi, but the reach is broader than that, um, because what I do in the book is I do take seriously the influence of Babylonian uh, religion on mm -hmm. the development of the Arabian religion, uh, the influence of the Jewish religion right back to the time of Abraham, who was, mm -hmm. uh, tr who was from Persia and traveled through Arabia, uh, and an influence of all those uh, different tribes uh, that were happening in Arabia at the time. So, I, I take seriously the influence of also the Gnosticism and the uh, the pagan influences on Gnosticism on the development of the Magi story from the sort of second and third centuries onwards. So I take all those influences seriously, but uh, I also take seriously Matthew's Gospel and realize that the core story in Matthew's Gospel is not an import from paganism. Did the Magi have any Jewish writing such as Isaiah or anything that would give them ideas of the prophecies or were there prophecies in other religions that might point to Christ that they would be interested in? Absolutely. This is where it's so interesting. Uh, in the 6th century BC, uh, there was a very strong uh, influence of Judaism in the Arabian Peninsula because after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, uh, the Jews were spread not only to Babylon, Babylon, but all across, they escaped into the Arabian Peninsula, where there were already Jewish settlements. Mm -hmm. So uh, from that time period onward, about five or six hundred years before uh, our Lord's birth, uh, the Jews were active in uh, Arabia, and some scholars are now saying that the second part of Isaiah's prophecies were actually written uh, from an Arabian context. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also influenced by the Babylonians, who were very active in the area. And around that same time period, Babylonian religion had grown and evolved into Zoroastrianism, which had its own messianic prophecies. So the wise men would have been influenced by the messianic prophecies of the Jews and the messianic prophecies of the Zoroastrians, all who were uh, active in this area uh, in the centuries leading up to the birth of Christ. Okay, very intriguing. I know there's always been great history within the pagan religions around Jerusalem, such as 
Virgil's great writings about a lamb That's and right. all that. So mm-hmm. we see almost as if God's trying to talk to everyone at the same time. Yes, and, and the Nabataean civilization was, a, because of its um, uh, travel and its trade, was a, a real melting pot. Uh, there were um, Greek influences, of course, Roman influences at that time, but more historically, uh, the Abrahamic influences, the Arabian tribes, and the Babylonian influences, all which came together. Uh, and this is also, uh, I thought, very interesting because the church has always said that the wise men represent um, the coming of all of the Gentile nations to the Lord. Hmm. And because the Nabataean kingdom was such a melting pot, uh, indeed, uh, they were representative of nations who they were trading with as far afield as India, China, uh, down the east, wow. the coast of East Africa, uh, as well as Babylon, Greece, um, Judea, uh, the Egyptians, and so forth. So, uh, in a way, historically, it also shows the theological point that, that the wise men represent all the nations of the world coming to Christ. Yeah, that's very impressive and not an aspect of the Magi I ever thought about, I have to admit. To switch gears a little bit, you do talk a little bit about it in your book, but I'm curious to hear you, and as our listeners are too, what are your theories about what that star of wonder the Magi were following, what is that? Well, I sometimes joke that there are as many theories about what the star really was as there are stars. Yes. Um, <laughs> but but uh, there are some very interesting theories out there. First of all, uh, I have to go back and say the idea that the wise men followed a magical star which led them step by step across the desert sands uh, this comes to us from the Gnostic elaborations mm. uh, of, of the of the story in in the first five centuries of the church. Matthew doesn't actually say that. Matthew says that the wise men said we saw his star when it rose, and then later on, after they leave Herod, they say the star went before them uh, over the house where the young child was. It does not say that the star led them step by step over their desert journey. That was an elaboration which came in from the from Gnosticism. Oh. So um, I went back to look at that and had to ask the question, why would um, some wise men far away from Jerusalem look at the night sky, see a star and say, oh, a newborn king was born in Judea? Nobody ever said, why did they do that? Uh, well, the reason they did that is because they were astrologers, and astrology led them to study certain formations of the constellations and the movement of the planets, mm-hmm. so that they made the connection that these movements of the stars and the planets and the constellations meant that a king was born in, in Judea. Uh, ancient astrology assigned uh, certain constellations to certain ethnic groups and certain nations and certain geographical areas. Uh, now, there were different forms of astrology and different um, signs and symbols that were used. So it's very, comp- very, very complicated, not only to understand astrology, but to understand ancient astrology mm-hmm. um, from the Middle East, because there was a Babylonian form, a Greek form, an Egyptian form, uh, and it's very complex uh, study. Nevertheless, um, scholars have spent time on it, and, and in my chapter in the book, uh, I go through and summarize the most um interesting theories and the ones which are most pro- most probable something else out of that isn't mentioned in matthew that i never realized till i read your book uh, there's no reason for us to assume that there were only three or that there were exactly three can you elaborate on that uh, where did we get the idea that there were three and why does that image persist i exactly i, I forget the exact references um but very early on some of the church fathers uh 
saw the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and concluded that there were three kings. Mm-hmm. I think it's Tertullian who records that uh, that they were kings. And he drew that because from the conclusion of the prophecies in Isaiah, which talks about the kings of Shaba and Seba coming to pay homage. And so Tertullian read that and connected the dots. Uh, again, uh, not exactly precisely according to the history, because Matthew doesn't say they were kings. However, I, I do believe they came as diplomats from the court of King Aratus IV of Nabatea to the king to King Herod's court. So there was certainly a royal dimension to their visit, although I don't think they themselves were kings. Is there any historical evidence that Herod would have met Magi who were searching for Christ? My theory is that they came from Nabatea, the neighboring kingdom, and that they came on a diplomatic visit uh, and from the court of Aratus IV to Herod, and uh, that therefore the evidence that we have is the evidence from Matthew's gospel that uh, these wise men came to Herod's court. There are other references, though, of Magi paying visits, paying royal visits. Uh, Around 60 AD, for instance, there's a record of uh, King Tyriadatis from uh, Armenia paying uh, a homage to Nero uh, and coming in a retinue. And within his retinue were Magi uh, or wise men or courtiers from his court uh, in Armenia to to pay homage to Nero. And a lot of the story sounds similar to the Magi story in Matthew. So some people say, well, that's where Matthew got the idea. Uh, It's more likely that this is simply uh, external corroborating evidence of Magi paying uh, visits to royal courts. And now as we're ended, Dorsey, we're covering a lot of ground here, but I'm curious to know what for you was the biggest delight or surprise that you had when researching and writing this book? Uh, The biggest delight was reading the history of King Herod uh, and the political situation at the time. Uh, Without going into too too much detail, uh, Herod himself was, his mother was a Nabataean princess. uh, And he and his siblings were brought up in the court of Nabataea uh, when there were political troubles in Judea, where his father was an official. And uh, furthermore, uh, right at the time of our Lord's birth, for complicated reasons, which I go into in that chapter, the king uh, of Nabatea, Aratus IV, had every political and economic motivation uh, to pay a diplomatic visit, uh, paying homage to what he thought uh, and his courtiers thought was a newborn king of the Jews, who would have been a grandson or a great-grandson of of Herod the Great. And that's why they went there. Uh, And I explain uh, all the political intrigues and the economic motivations they had for paying that visit. I've tried to stress that this isn't just a Christmas book. This is a great historical book, uh, almost like you said, a detective story going on here and trying to find out who the Magi are. But what would you say is something you would like pastors, priests, and others to take away from this book and bring to their congregation? Well, I would really love for pastors to have the courage uh, to talk to their congregations about not just the, all the tinsel and lights and the and and the beautiful sentimental thoughts about giving gifts at Christmas mm-hmm. and little children in mangers and angels and shepherds and so forth. Uh, that's all well and good, but for too many people, that that keeps the story in the realm of fairy tale and fiction. And because there's already so much fairy tale surrounding Christmas with Santa Claus and reindeer and flying sleighs and snowmen and and all the rest of it. Um, too many people tend to put the the gospel stories into that same category of um, very pleasant kind of Christmas tale, uh, you know. And I would love for pastors to say, hey, let's take a moment this Christmas uh, and examine the history behind the, the Christmas story and remember uh, that it really happened. That is something very great. And 
I think your book does a fantastic job of really getting into the nitty gritty of what's going on here. You clearly had to do a lot of research. I'm sure your eyes are still straining from the text, but it's a good book for that. And to wrap us up, we're almost out of time. We've covered a lot of ground. Any of you who are still not convinced, you can go to DwightLongnecker.com. There's a video series, and also he's blogging about it right now, even as we're going to be publishing this. So that's another great resource. But, Father, if anyone else wants to learn more about you or the Magi, where can they go? Well, you just said DwightLongnecker.com is my uh, website. I have my blog there, which runs every day. Uh, And there's... uh, as you say, a video up there as well. And there's an increasing amount of, of information about the book out there, but um, encourage them to go. They can buy the book straight from me on the website or they can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Also over at Amazon uh, is the uh, ebook version and an audio book version, if that's what they would prefer. So I encourage them not only to buy it for themselves, but it makes a great gift at Christmas, especially for those uh, lapsed Catholics and, and, and doubters and questioners about the faith. It's not a specifically religious book. Uh, it's a history book, uh, and it can be put into their hands, and you can say, look, uh, this doesn't preach at you. It's not particularly religious or makes any arguments for religion, but it is a very fascinating history book about the New Testament and the birth of Jesus. Yes, and I do have to ask uh, as my final question, do you read the audiobook per chance? You know, I didn't get okay. a chance to, uh, and they went ahead, the publishers went ahead and, and did the whole thing, but I, I would have liked the opportunity, and I'll, I'm certainly going to try it next time. Okay, well, I had to ask, because I know there are going to be listeners listening to this go, he has a very nice Anglo-American accent, I want to hear him more, so. <laughs> Thank you very much. Of course. Well, Father, all along, Anchor, this has been a wonderful conversation. I rather enjoyed the book. I liked that there's a good bit of real history going on in the Catholic world. And this book definitely does it. And it's not just for Catholics, but thank you very much for writing it. Thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to tell us and the listeners about it. And I hope it reaches many, many more hearts. Thank you very much for your time. God bless you. God bless. And that was once again, Father Dwight Lonnecker unraveling a little bit of the mystery of the Magi and go ahead and pick up his book. It's quite good at your local Catholic bookstore, at a flea market, or online if you're a normal person. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and of course, DwightLonnecker.com. Check out his video series, check out his blog. He's written for us in the past. I hope he does again. And he's always interesting. Check out Mystery of the Magi at any of your local Catholic bookstores. And if you would like to hear more, email me, editor at CatholicExchange.com. I always want to hear from listeners. This episode was partly inspired by a listener. You know who you are. Thank you so much. As well, we have a few things coming up for Advent, including some meditations for Advent. So hit subscribe if you haven't done so on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast service you like to use. Or you can just email me, editor at CatholicExchange.com, and I'll see if we can put us on another service. And if you have some money, I know donations, money's tight, it's Christmas, I know, but if you have $5 a month, this helps us stay in business. So thank you all who already donate, and to the rest of you, God love you, have a wonderful week. Once again, this is Michael Litchens with CatholicExchange.com.